Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. As the summer approaches and season two of this podcast begins to draw to a close, it's about that time. We need Pastor John. The call goes out over the hills. Pastor John, help help us make sense of the world. Help us make sense of things. I am so happy, my friends, to be joined once again by my pastor and your good podcast host, Pastor John Hallowell. Welcome back to the Garage Studio. Wow, that's pretty humbling, Dave. And uh, <laughs> I would say it's a privilege to be one of the last uh, podcasts of your second season. Congratulations, Thank by you. the way. And the crows have just delivered to me the call. And uh, so I've shown up here. (laughs) (laughs) They're making short work of my uh, trash cans out there. (laughs) Um, But no, yes, we, we, we did this at the end of last season. We did this toward the beginning of this season. It, It tends to be the case that when you come on, it's sort of like this check in moment, the big picture stuff. It's this, the state of the state of the nation, the state of the church. And yet, and, and there's a lot of ways to come at that. And, and there's a lot of people who've been trying to think through what's been happening this last year or so. We've talked about it in in moments ourselves. The last time you were on, I mean, it was literally like a couple days before the insurrection, you know? I mean, it was, it was an incredible yes. moment uh, at the beginning of this year uh, in which you and I were basically talking about the, the demise, the sort of collapse of evangelicalism before it officially sort of caught fire in front of everyone and we started to see things that we had been talking about but wish we could have stopped it huh (laughs) (laughs) i know it's like if we if we knew why didn't we do something um so the last time you were on i mean it was it was prescient to say the least but it was it was one of those big picture moments in which we were talking about this this christian movement that you and I have been a part of that, you know, sort of uh, is how we came to know, or at least uh, the kind of churches we came up in and came to know the Lord through. Um, and and it wasn't a pretty picture last time that we we looked out. It's, it's not that it it's prettier now, but I know that one of the things that we get to do is we're, we're not approaching this as sociologists, although we like to read sociologists and, and we, we want to know what they have to say. We're not approaching this as economists. We're not approaching this as political theorists, although, again, we like to read and are interested in people approaching it in a variety of ways. But we approach this as pastors, and we approach it from a, a fairly humble experience of being a pastor, um, but a real experience, a real perspective on things uh, related to the church, particularly in North America, related to ministry, related to the interface between church and culture. Um, and we've, we've seen a lot of different things over the years. For you, over 30, 35 years in ministry. For me, about 15. Um, we, we're approaching it from the perspective of people who are committed to the church, people who, who, who preach the word uh, week in and week out and try to help people walk with, with Jesus. But, but we approach it within that context as people who are well, very aware of this bigger picture of contemporary Christianity that we've been laboring within, laboring sometimes against, 
Um, so, so it is with that perspective. It, it is with our um, sort of boots on the ground uh, viewpoints. And, uh, and I think it gives us an interesting perspective. It might, it might not always vibe with what other people think they're seeing or, or with how other people are, are formulating it. But I think that we have a particular and a unique way of seeing these things. And I think it's worth digging into it by just being honest about where we're coming from as ministers of the gospel in contemporary Christianity. So from that vantage point, um, where would you want to start as far as is it looking back or stepping back to get some of this big picture stuff in front of us? Um, I mean, I could recap like I did a little bit of where we were in January, um, but now we're, we're in June. And uh, what do you think? What, what's, a, what's a way to get into this? Sort well, I, of- I, think, uh, I think one of the reasons why the um, January 6th thing was so, uh, so obvious, not the details of that, of course, it was shocking as it was, but, but just where evangelicalism had, had declined to, uh, I think it was, it's because it's a long arc, as they say. Uh, and for me, uh, it goes back to the 1970s and even the 1980s. Um, when I first came to the Lord, we were radically um, evangelical. Uh, we were into God's Word. Uh, we were fighting fundamentalism all the time because fundamentalism uh, literally threatened to um, it literally threatened to uh, overtake evangelicalism uh, all the time in every way. Return back, you know, the pious statements and whatever. But at that time. Uh, there was the Francis Schaeffer Labrie movement of intellectual Christianity forming. And so we were able to process that as young followers of Jesus uh, to, to, to read Francis Schaeffer's books, you know, like How Then Shall We Live and just calls to uh, uh, more and more effectiveness. And, uh, and then in 1981, he wrote um, uh, The Christian Manifesto. And the Christian Manifesto was a very clear call to fight a very clear enemy. Uh, and it was, the enemy was secular humanism. And um, so we were able to process that and, and see that fight going on. But our, but our walk with the Lord was greater than the, the, uh, the fight uh, against secular humanism. It was just kind of, uh, well, yeah, this would be nice to get away with. And so Francis Schaeffer in that book talked about the uh, worldview that was emerging and displacing the remembrance of Christianity. Uh, and and he, he described it as a deep and a broad problem. And, and um, it, was, it was that humanism was going to displace the worldview of Christianity. And it had already rocked many of the institutions. So Schaefer, Schaefer saw a moment and, and he, said, he called it the window of opportunity where political conservatism could roll back the damage done in some of the institutions uh, if, if we would let it. But, but all along, um, his, his, um, he had all these cautions there. He said that the window was open to change things, but, but we needed to understand that the silent majority, and this was a decades-long term that you know, Richard Nixon had invoked to get support for uh, his own uh, 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 fighting in Vietnam and whatever. Uh, but, but this idea that there was a silent majority of people who were reasonable and sensible out there, well, Schaefer identified them as, as being of two parts, a majority of the silent majority, if you can follow that, 
uh, they wanted nothing more than to be wealthy and to be left alone, not be bothered by anything. Mm. And then the minority of the silent majority, they, um, they were people who stood on some kind of principle, Schaefer said. And, and, and they had some, uh, uh, at least a memory of Christianity within them. He described it that way, even if they were in fact not Christians. They remembered what Christianity was. So a minority of the silent majority was that way. And he said that uh, it, it was uh, possible that the minority of the silent majority could hold while we made changes. They could stand firm in what they believed in. But the majority wouldn't. He said that, uh, he said that, that they, would, uh, they, would be, they would become altered by or seduced, he said, by the promise of, of a, or even the illusion of an improved economy. They would, mm. they would suddenly turn and, and they would want it more and more and more and forget about uh, changing the institutions. Okay, so his last warning was, uh, as Christians, we must stand absolutely and totally opposed to the whole humanist system, whether it's controlled by conservative or liberal elements. Thus, Christians must not become aligned officially with either group just on the basis of the name of it. And, and so his, his view is that we had to always stand for Jesus. We could affect politics, uh, and, and conservatism could go in and help institutions, but the, the great danger was to lose sight of it. So if the window closed, which it did, uh, Schaefer's next option was a beginning of resistance, which started with nonviolent resistance and ended with violent resistance. Mm. The violent resistance, this is interesting. If you, uh, if you go back and read the Christian Manifesto, it's uh, really interesting uh, to see this play out. He, he said that the violent resistance could only occur towards state officials, states, uh, people who legitimately or illegitimately held office. Because even a corrupt government, Schaefer argued, was ordained by God. And uh, it's really interesting when you, hear, um, when you hear people just take the word of, of, of a, uh, an elected official and then just violently carry it out. They feel empowered to do that. So, um, you know, in, in Schaefer's estimation, this, this should have never happened. So along the way, now full scale, what's, what's laid out before us is uh, the, we lost sight of an enemy. It's not secular humanism. Uh, there's no, there's no dif- discernible enemy in the evangelicalism. It's just whatever we fear the most. It's our fears projected out that we fear. And, uh, and, and then um, it, the, method of, the method of it is not sensible and civilized. It's hatred and violence. And it's clearly the end of the Christian Manifesto. The Christian Manifesto obviously is over. Uh, there's no legitimate uh, intellectual basis for, for what evangelicalism politically is doing. And it must be renounced politically. I mean, we, we can't have a political uh, interest that rises to a level of our Christianity. And we certainly can't have one that's higher than our Christianity. Uh, remember the book we, uh, we went through this about 10 years ago called The Seven Faith Tribes, the George Barna book. Very interesting. People really love the, the simple categorization of Christians um, uh, broken into casual Christians that mm. Barna did, two-thirds of evangelicalism, and captive Christians, one-sixth of the American population. So two-thirds of, of Americans being casual Christians um, not necessarily following the scriptures, not necessarily committed to any beliefs that we would consider to be radicalized for Jesus. And, um, and that, that huge group, they're 
trying to govern as the minority, uh, but they're two-thirds of, of evangelicalism, 75, 80 percent of them are, um, are, are leaned politically and politically active in that way. So that, that corresponds with what Schaefer was saying about the majority of the silent majority, right? That there's this, there was this conflation of conservatism and Christianity, uh, evangelicalism, um, and yet within that broad conflation, the vast majority, uh, as Schaefer pointed out, uh, would be perfectly happy with a thriving economy and not yes. with a thriving gospel. Or any of the other number of uh, any of the other number of issues, and and Schaefer was even so wise to say they they didn't have to be real issues; they could be illusions, and and would still be effective. So you're saying, look, Schaefer's window of opportunity is closed. It's closed, um, and that the call that he gave 40 years ago in the Christian Manifesto, I mean, in so many ways, that's what was so sad about that is it was converted to a cheap culture war, and he was trotted out, you know, as a, as a soundbite to undergird why we must come against, and then ultimately even, as we've seen, um, be willing maybe even to violently come against um, all of these these bogeymen of, of secular culture. Um, and yet Schaefer was much more nuanced, much more qualified, much more careful in what to do next uh, when he was even making that, uh, setting out those competing you know worldviews and those competing claims on people's understanding of what a person is and what the telos of life or the universe might be so so Schaefer's subtlety uh, maybe not surprising uh, <laughs> trampled underfoot yeah. um, and so then then we're left with what you and I would see of as a failed or expired uh, movement um, and usually when you by the time you see um, the kinds of sort of violent uh, tendencies um, of Christian nationalism and, and these kinds of new formations um, this uh, an emboldened increasingly hateful increasingly angry increasingly hostile increasingly tribal by the time you see that you're, you're on the far end edge of something you're, you're yeah. not something is not just beginning there something is at its it, its sort of death throes but it's like this terrifying sort of like spinning crocodile death throw yeah um yeah so so tell me a little bit more about how you see i mean you talked about remnant you talked about schaefer pointing out there was only ever a minority in that silent majority um, that was actually interested in the things of Christ. Um, so w in this moment, um, it, would you say that, that, that the conservative project is, has, has sort of turned bereft, or is it that that just needs sort of uncoupled from the gospel project because we've got it so wrong? Well, I, I think those are, are discussion points probably worth pursuing, but, but more importantly for you and I, because we pastor people, right. um, we need to understand the effect of, of what's happened and the fact that we have two-thirds of, of, of American evangelicals now uh, have basically been hijacked, uh, their, their, their will, their motivations, their viewpoint has been sort of hijacked and um and and so the the real issue for us is how do we minister to people uh in this context where there's alternate realities where there where there's a, a, you know a group of people they live in a totally different world uh relationally you know it used to be to approach a message uh you would try to find common ground with with people you know and and culture you're saying when you're just preaching 
uh, Sunday sermon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 You, you start out, you know, and the, and, and the principle of, of good preaching is you, you start out with a handshake. You go meet people where they're at. You, um, you know, you extend to them illustrations that are, that are secular. And, and, uh, and by the way, the term secular got demonized with Schaefer, but it was Christianity that started the secular uh, society. Right. You know, the idea that, that we don't need a king. Right. <laughs> we, we have King Jesus. And right. so we can have this neutral society structured with justice and all that. Yeah. And we don't need to worship anybody doing it. But, but, um, but, but to connect with people through the secular and then draw them into a deeper understanding of Scripture was, was the flow generally. Well, um, it, you, can't really, um, you can't really preach to a mixed group of people who have alternate realities. And the reason why is because a pastor must be understandable, uh, must be believable, and must be followable. Let me explain what that means. So you've got to understand what, what the pastor is saying. The, the human words have to be understood. Um, the intent of the person has to be there. It's not the, it's not the um, primary authority, but, it, but you can't hide it. If you hide it, you presume an authority you don't have. So the words have to be understandable. So um, now the, the great danger today is if you draw from the general culture of the culture wars, half of the people are in one uh, culture and half are in the other, and approximately half. So you don't have a common thread there uh, in, in, the, in the way that we've, we've had for the last 30 or 40 years at least. Um, so, so it breaks down right there. Well, secondly, the pastor has to be believable. And when I say believable, I mean that there has to be a trust that what Jesus wants me to hear and know is coming through this human voice. He's quoting scripture, he's, he's speaking out of experience, out of prayer, uh, and, and so um, ultimately I'm going to be called to trust that that message is believable. Faith, I'm, I've got to have faith that, that something more than just human beings exchanging ideas is going on here. And then thirdly, uh, the pastor has to be followable. Uh, in other words, when the pastor says, now I want to insist on this, and I know you guys don't think this is much, but I want to insist on this, uh, uh, a good pastor will get, will get sheep that respond. And this is what Jesus taught about, you know, in John chapter 10, the good shepherd. The sheep know his voice and they follow him. And, uh, you know, we have this, we've created this um, congregation, this national congregation, which is now fully churched in contemporary Christianity. And what that means is they, they uh, market they market and they uh, travel in opinions. They exchange strong um, uh, values and views that are not necessarily scriptural. They're, they're very contemporary. Um, they're filled with compromises. They, um, they, they want affirmation uh, immediately. They, uh, you know, the, the, the pastor says, you need to be godly, and you have to pursue that, to attain that. And the contemporary uh, Christian is in a congregation that says, no, I, I'm here, I'm godly, <laughs> I've attained it. Uh, this is my good confession of faith. I'm part of this big group here. Um, and, and then um, that makes them uh, not, not really able to follow the pastor. They're able to follow the loudest voice. And so basically it's, it's like the, the, the birds of, of the air have nested in the tree 
and there's a thousand crows going off and the pastor's voice is just one of them. And, and so there's no longer a place where the pastor can say, up, oh, wrong turn, this is a wrong turn, do not listen to this, do not follow this, do not let this into your life. And we're talking about important things like violence, hatred, uh, uh, tribalism. Um, these things a pastor needs, to, who cares about people, needs to say, if you let this into your soul, if you buy this for one minute, you're going to spend five minutes suffering from it, and then you're going to spend another 10 minutes trying to get rid of it. And for every hour you hate or, or, or be a violent person, you're probably taking uh, years off of your life at least and, and risking walking away from Christ. And so, uh, so, so right now the, the setting of the, the contemporary church that's evangelical that, that you and I were familiar with, here mega church, small church, all the same, uh, it's basically not going to be effective for the preaching of the gospel. It's going to be, it's going, it's going to be satisfactory to the people who are coming because they don't want more than just, I want to meet people. I want services for my children. I want, uh, you know, I, I want, uh, I want to resume uh, being able to do this on Sunday. Uh, <laughs> you know, they're going to want things that that they're very familiar with that have now been proven to be ineffective. They 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 do not cut the mustard with the individual with the individual who needs to be challenged and called to faith daily and uh, and so in my estimation it's all got to change now um, we've been trying to focus on things for a decade or more um, that are part of those changes uh, they have just become more urgent than ever before and probably more definable than ever before uh, and so pastoring basically has to take a different view and 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 people who are coming to church to find christ through a pastored church they have to understand uh, a new reality about about the state of existence and what's around us that there is um, alternate realities and if they're going to just let everything in and try and decide for themselves what's what's right and what's not right which way to go which way not to go they're probably going to go the wrong way, uh, and maybe maybe to their own harm uh, first. And and if and when a pastor, you know, you or I or anyone else uh, has tried to be very clear about those calls or those lines, um, I, I know from several examples, and I, I even think of the story I think I shared before of my bagel guy. You know, my bagel guy was like I asked asked him uh, some months ago, like where he was going to church and. And he had been going to a particular evangelical church uh, for years, and and he gave me this look, and he's like, "Oh yeah, we're not going there anymore. We're going to this other place." And he goes, "I don't like people getting political from the pulpit." And I knew like this guy was like super political, like intensely political. Yes. So I, what I knew was going on is the pastor he was talking about, which is again, I, and I I think I might have shared this before, but um, was not some firebrand, was not some. He was a steady, uh, reliable, reasonable, you know, very unassuming kind of voice. He had actually drawn a line or two in the midst of some of these topics that we're talking about, in the midst of some of these moments this last year. And it, and it was just, no, that's just an opinion. It's a political opinion. And I was here and I was like, I think it's a gospel opinion. And, and instead it was like, all you had to do is say, no, I don't like politics coming from the pulpit. And he was, he was, he had a, he had a label for when someone calls other Christians from the pulpit 
to not give in to violence and hatred, it, it became dismissible amongst a crowd of voices as a political opinion, and we don't need that in our church. And so, and so he just found another church. I mean, that is a perfect yeah. encapsulation. Yeah, I've, I've run in, I've run into that too. Uh, a gentleman who um, who followed uh, our ministry for years um, uh, asked me a Bible question um, through uh, through texting this year, and um, I gave him the best answer I could. And unsolicited, he said, uh, yeah, that's what I love about you. You can explain the scriptures to me. I, I don't care about your politics. I, I don't like your politics, and I don't respect your politics, but I, but I respect your knowledge of the Word of God. Hmm. And uh, I, to me, that was like a backhanded slap across the face. Like, I don't share my politics with him. Right. Uh, 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 overtly unless it's at a point where um you know there's a deception involved and then i then i will share but but the point being the same that uh you know we come out of this past environment where someone could say i respect your knowledge of the bible but not you as a person overall (laughs) you know my knowledge of the bible is up on the top tier of my existence it's like this is what i live for my knowledge of politics is way down low at the knee level and so how can you how can you say that you know you respect that that uh, that that view of scripture and not realize it comes out of a humanized I mean I've been I've been incarnating my own beliefs for my life and uh, you don't respect me as a person if you dismiss me out of hand from so, my viewpoint. So maybe you're understandable to some extent, but you're either not believable or not followable. If I, if I need the Bible answer, man, and a question to tell my dying buddy. Pocket pastor. Uh, yeah, yeah. You got, I got you. But then like you say, you just become a voice, just another voice. Another, just another It's just voice. another version, if it's worth something to you for a while, or you can switch it out for a louder voice, a more interesting yeah. voice, or... So, so there is this crisis. We've talked about this on a few of our podcasts. There's this crisis in the church um, because there's a, a crisis in, in, in pastoral authority, pastoral leadership, the ability for a pastor to, to make. I mean, you know, just we've been studying in First Thessalonians, like just to, just to talk the way that the Apostle Paul talks, like is not acceptable anymore like you know like he when he's talking about issues and he's drawing lines and he's being clear and distinct about how things work in the real world including in the secular spaces in which ordinary life and life with our civic society and neighbors exist like if someone was to talk like that this today it'd just be just cast out just like he was i mean like there is that there is that remarkable sort of like that's no longer a welcomed voice, right? Because if it presumes to have any authority to be the word of God uh, to a person that would be binding, um, it's it's like I can't can't abide that. And yet, if you look in at the structure of of the 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 group, the ecclesia, the the called out, right. uh, if you look at at the uh, structure of it. The role of a pastor is foundational. I mean, God doesn't doesn't give the Bible and say, "Here, here's your autonomous pass. Now you just read this and pick and select what you want, and and uh, and I won't hold you accountable to anything that that you didn't want." Uh, you know that that isn't the way it works. It's like communities of faith have pastors who are who are visible. They're they're 
they've got to be consistent. They've got to be living what they're preaching and what they're, what they're living and preaching needs to be pleasing to God and needs to be visible at least to the extent where you can see if it's a fraud or not. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, so the church doesn't work without a pastor. Uh, and that, you know, at least the, uh, the contemporary Christian church, the evangelical church, it doesn't work without a pastor. Uh, there's a, there's a uh, famous story in this uh, book called Pagan Christianity by George Barna and Frank Viola. Uh, <laughs> it was a pretty good book, 2008. But there's this uh, a character in there named Joe Housechurch. And Joe Housechurch uh, uh, feels like he's had it with the church. It's an institution he can't get behind anymore. So he hears about the scriptures uh, leading them. And he clips and cuts, clip and cut, that's the phrase that Barna and Viola use, that, that the depth of their scriptural knowledge is clip and cut. Mm. Uh, and so he goes out and he clips and cuts and he starts his own house church and he just goes down this road because he's convinced from the scripture that he has the authority to do this. And, and he's just like so off base. He's got all the scriptures out of context. He doesn't really understand any of them. And, uh, and, he, and he has this, um, uh, this gathering in his house that has no excitement, energy, no blessing of God. And he's like confused. And, and, it, and it is true. It's like somebody's got to vouch for what's happening. And, you know, that's the teaching of Hebrews 12. You know, don't cause your elders grief because they got to stand before God and be accountable for you. And, uh, and so I think that here's the turn I think that we have to take as a result of all of this. Um, I think we have to view uh, the church kind of like the, the scientific view of creation, the initial expansion of the universe. And uh, in a recent, recent sermon, I talked about this as an illustration or introduction. But the expansion of the universe, and, you know, it says in the Psalms that God stretched out the heavens like a curtain, you know, and that's the expanding universe. Uh, begins to, to take off. First 300 years of Christianity, it goes out. Uh, by the time Constantine issues the Edict of Toleration in, in uh, 323 AD, there's 300 million Christians around the world. It's gone out all over the place. And they're all connected with, with groups and, and communities of faith everywhere. Uh, but it grows. Uh, and then, um, and then it, it grows and it grows and it grows until it takes on a global identity uh, which, which we'll call it Roman Catholicism. You can include in there Eastern Orthodoxy if you want, uh, this global identity. Uh, but then it gets contaminated with this global identity. It's the traditions of man begin to be mixed in. The, the struggles of Constantinople and Rome begin to affect the, the teaching, the preaching. Uh, the indulgences come in. And, uh, and, and so the, the, the church, the authentic church, has to scale down. It has to become not the global church anymore. And so you have um, uh, pilgrims and Puritans leaving Europe to seek a better land to have a, a church or a gathering. By the way, there's no, there's no association between church and building until three right. or 400 years in. I mean, right. the church is the gathered community. So you have this scaling down of let's go find a land where we can have a church that's faithful to the scriptures. And so now the, the full circle turn is that the, the church, the evangelicalism, that's American evangelicalism, is contaminated. It's got violence in it. It's got hatred and, and lying in it. It's got alternate versions of reality. Facts are not facts. There's not a common shared view of, of what's happening. 
Uh, you have to see something and get someone's explanation of what you're seeing before you know what you're seeing. And, and, uh, and so it's, it's scaling down that has to happen. And the scaling down that has to happen has to leave the contaminated parts out of, out of the seek, seeking of God. So, because you don't know when you're being contaminated and when you're not. Um, I read this book not too long ago by David Brooks, the, uh, the uh, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning uh, writer, and it's called The Second Mountain. And he talks about how we go through life, we, we just have this God-given ability to, to do things and know things. We go to school forever. We learn skills. We, we take on family. We take on, you know, expansion of life. And then we hit the second mountain. Uh, something breaks. Usually it's us. Uh, we can't do it anymore. We get sick. Somebody gets sick. We get heartbroken. We get deceived. So Brooks's book is about facing the second mountain, the road to character. And in it, he explores the fact that, that tribalism uh, is held out for desperate people who, who have lost community mm. and that tribalism is based on, on hatred of something, always. It's always based on, I hate that, I, I hate that. So would you stand with me and hate that with me? And, and, uh, and, and the community then forms on, on friends versus enemies. Who are our friends and who are our enemies? And, and, and uh, winners and losers. And it's a zero-sum game. You know, they're, they're, you're the winner or loser. And what Brooks says is that, um, uh, that, that communities that are based on mutual love are, are, are the communities where people climb the second mountain, mm -hmm. where, they, where they're able to face adversity. And, and, you know, that's supposed to be the basis of Christianity. We're supposed to, to, to love something. Brooks says that life is about falling in love with things making promises, and keeping those promises. That if you live your life like that, you will live a character-filled life because in order to fall in love with things, you have to appreciate the wholesomeness of them and the goodness of them. And then, and then you make promises that, though, that you've been privileged to see this love. So you're going to promise to support and sustain this love as, as long as you can and as much as possible within you. And then keeping those promises becomes a task of overcoming adversity. And, uh, you know, Brooks's book uh, uh, was pretty interesting because he said that society changes when a small group of people find a better way to live and the rest of us copy them. Hmm. So that's what I think the turn is for Christianity. I think it's a small, scaled-down version of what the faith that was expanding throughout the whole world was expanding from— and now shrinking back down to essentials, and, and I hate the phrase back to the basics. I mean, every generation tries back to the basics. <laughs> this isn't back to the basics anything. This is, this is a fourfold view of reality that has reality checks in it for you. And let me tell you what they are. Let me pause you first. Okay, sure. So what I think is so interesting about the analogy that Brooks uses and, the, and then the way you're using it in particular because he talks about that first mountain is the one that is driven by sort of the early passions of life, ambition, right? Success, those markers of achievement, career, all those kinds of things. Like obvious displays of, you know, financial gain, uh, power, of prominence, those kinds of things. And then the valley on the other side of that, when things break, right? When things collapse, when things don't work out, when you lose the job or when when you lose the, the, the perfect family or whatever it is, when that breakdown happens and you end up in that, that valley, 
right? The dark valley that he talks about on the other side of that early ambition kind of uh, upslope that, that everyone's driven by coming out of high school, college, etc. Um, in that valley, when people are broken, when people are in despair, when people feel powerless, insecure, when the ambitions, hopes, and plans they had come to not what they ho- hoped and planned uh, that they had, uh, that they wanted, What's so interesting in that place, that's a place where the gospel, as you say, means to come alive or needs to come alive, but it's also the place where grievance and anger is festering, where people feel like my life has not gone how it was supposed to. And in that place of frustration, bitterness, those kinds of things, so easy to get a little tap on the shoulder and say, you know whose fault it is? They've ruined the culture. You know whose fault it is. They've brought this into this into our our country. You know whose fault it is. He has been in control. You know whose fault it is, right? And then it becomes whether it's the conspiracy theorists, you know, with the big, you know, bad people in the shadows everywhere, or it's just outright pure political hatred and the tribalism of our politics. But the vulnerability of of grown adults whose lives did not work out the way they hoped or dreamed. Or they got what they thought they were supposed to get and it didn't satisfy, as you were saying. That's prelude to hearing the gospel of Jesus as the hope of the true hope of your life. But it's also that same moment in which you can stoke the fires of bitterness and all that tribalistic language that, that can come into someone and it's energizing to be angry. It's energizing to be passionately against something. It's like a it's like a lazy activity to be because you know it didn't work out. You don't know how to put the pieces together, but you know that someone might be to blame that isn't just you and you can join the team that's going to do that. So that same valley is the place in which the Christian church is meant to come alive. The gospel message is meant to rescue people from that place, but it's also the place in which our tribalism has has been has been uh, sort of stirred up, right? So this dynamic you're describing is very similar to, in the 1970s, very similar to the dynamic between evangelicalism, the neo-evangelicalism, and fundamentalism. Because you'd see people get excited about the gospel, excited about the Lord, but then there was always this uh, uh, there was always this presence of these people who were seated with this anger, and if and if they cross paths with someone who is new and fresh and and absorbing the gospel, they would get them angry, and and before you know it, they'd just siphon them off, sign them up for the culture war. So yeah. so that's the environment we're going to be operating in is yeah. is people who are who are coming to find the Lord and very positive and falling in love with Jesus and and learning to love life again and trust life again. Now there's going to be voices around that say, yeah, but you know what? Who knows fault that was? And like you described, that, that uh, energy is there to, to get them off track. And that's, that's going to be part and parcel with going forward. Is, and I think the way you deal with that is you educate people enough to where they know, uh, they know what that's, what's at stake, what, where the gospel's unique and the promise and and, and really what it gets down to is, is the fact of letting Jesus himself save you out of that valley and no one else. Right, because that it is. In that dark valley, um, it's a contest of the gods, right? It's, yes. It's always about idolatry. It's always that you're going to look to something because whatever you on your own was up to didn't work out. 
right? Um, and so you're going to now look to something to energize you. You're going to look to something to be some centrifugal force in your life that you're going to spin around. And, and so it's back to that. I mean, as you say, but it's that, it's that first century contest of the apostle Paul saying, Hey, look, you're looking to mammon. You're looking to, you know, you're looking to Eris, you know, you're, you're looking to these gods of anger, these gods of money, these gods, these, all these false gods to make you well again, or to make you whole or to make you something or fear of them. Oh, right, right. You're, you're being motivated, uh, with them at your center, right. And some reaction to them, serving them in whatever way, um, out of fear or desire, whatever it might be. Um, let me tell you about the God of the gods, the God over all gods, the King over all these things, right? The one true God. And so it, it, it's back to that preaching the gospel, uh, uh, in a field of idols. Right? Yes. Yeah, and remember from that uh, Thessalonians passage that you cited that our task is to is to go after the one real binary, truth or not true. It's it's not good or bad. I mean, that's the knowledge of the the, the knowledge of good and evil come from the tree of life and the forbidden fruit and but but it's to find the true and living God. Living, not you can't look back in history and find him. He's living. He's alive today. And he's true, and all the others are false. So the binary of, of finding him then becomes, becomes the goal. And, and it's a, it is a doable goal. Um, I've identified four areas of scaling down that I think are important. And they've, they've kind of been in our preaching for a while, piecemeal. But, but formally describing them is, 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 first of all, personhood. Um, right. We ended our, our last season trying to make this distinction about the God of politics becoming the core that energizes people and the need for personhood. Yes. So we're rescued from from being a (laughs) non-person. We're we're rescued from being lost or broken, and fragmentation is the worst uh, enemy of personhood. We're we're rescued uh, to being a person as, as we were intended to be, as our creation intended us to be. Uh, and and that is that uh, that is through Jesus. He he um, uh, embodies us as a person, and it's it's difficult to um, uh, to explain how how first step contemporary damage is to personhood. Mm. Um, if, if I expand myself beyond who I am, and I can start thinking about issues and life, irrespective of my own real life. I am so prone to becoming materialistic, uh, 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 capitalistic, uh, tribalistic. Uh, I began, I began uh, viewing myself above. Re- I transcend from my present reality in a way that's not authorized, not true. And, and I lose my personhood first and foremost. So, so the, the core of, of our scaling down has to be the pursuit of our our skills as a person, our consciousness as a person, knowing that a person worships something, uh, a person knows uh, the knows that they're going to die one day, and all those things we talked about, the intentional uh, things of the will. We do things with our will intentionally, and and the the goal here is we have to get feedback. We can no longer be living idealistic lives, assuming that they are pleasing God without getting feedback because we have no, we have no reality check any longer. 
you know, we have no, uh, uh, we have no uh, stereotype on what reality is. It's all mixed and mingled now. So this, this uh, personhood has to take place in a place. Mm. So we have to be embodied, and we have to have a place. And that place is home. Okay, now I'm I'm not saying home ownership. I'm not saying <laughs> <Thank> God. <laughs> uh, the guy who's living under the bridge has a home if if yeah. he makes it his home. Right. Okay. So for most of us, wherever we live, we make our home. Our homes can be abuse-filled, uh, broken. They can be full of darkness, and it doesn't matter if it's under a bridge or if it's on top of Nelly Gale. It can be uh, a place of torment. So. Our home has to be rescued by Christ also. Now, here's where we make a mistake. I think that focus on the family was a mistake because the definition of a family was uncontrollable except through political means. And so the grasp was, well, we got this giant movement for the family, but now we're getting blended families and mixed families and families being redefined. People are living together. And we can't, we got to control that legally or whatever. And, and so the, the culture wars dove into that, okay? You live at home with others, and they're part of your existence. And whether, they're ble- whether it's a blended family, uh, whether it's uh, something, whether it's a social experiment, whatever it is, those are the people in the place that you live that you have to love. You love them. You, uh, you, you fall in love with them. You're committed to them. Uh, you, uh, you seek scriptural guidance for how you do that. And um, this is where we've lost touch with reality because we, we, we can say, I'm a family man, and we're not, you know, it's just a value that's undefined, that's, that's, that's not accessible to us. Now, if, if you and I... Uh, want to want to start a family we can okay we can start a family and we're going to bring our values into it we're going to uh we're going to be able to put our energy into it we're going to be able to to uh, uh you know take care of it or serve it however we see fit however our our personhood our will the intention of our will uh projects forward and that's a place we've got to have so let me give you an example okay so Let's use you as an example today. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> okay. So, so Dave says. <laughs> oh, wow. Dave says. What did I say? I want to work. Yep. I want to work on home. Okay. Okay. So that desire to work on home is going to reveal a lot about where you've come as a person, who you're listening to, who's helping you, who's alongside you as a community. Because Dave might say, now I know you're not going to say this, but, but you might say, well, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work at home, so I'm going to work on, I'm going to put gun racks up in the garage. Uh-oh. I'm going to put uh, security devices, devices around the outskirts mm. of the community, right. around my property. Yeah. I'm going to get a pit bull. I'm going to train them. Well, staffy anyway. Uh, yeah. I'm going to work on, I'm going to put effort and energy into things that I value, that I consider. Protect my home. Okay. Yeah. To protect my home, because protection, after all, is found in Scripture. That's okay? my job, yeah. So you're working at that. So it's important that you do that so that you come to the place where you realize 
in the Lord that, hey, what, what I thought was important isn't important, <laughs> and I'm going to get tactile feedback yeah. when, uh, you know, when I forget to turn the alarm on and somebody comes in and ransacks my house and I feel empty and I can't get over that and they steal all my guns, and I'm going to realize, man, I spent 10 years and all my discretionary income yeah. trying to protect myself and I can't protect myself. But you need that feedback. You right. need that reality. So, so Lisa comes out and says, hey, you've been in the garage all day building that gun rack, but you've been missing our kids growing up, and yes. we're not reading together as a family, yes. and we're not even living together, but you're out there. So, so the Dave who's developed in, in salvation, who Jesus has, has worked on and, and given you intentional will and, and, a, and a vision of, of how you can affect life 20 years from now, that Dave says, I want to work on my home a little bit. I think I'll go in and read my kids a nighttime story and pray with them mm-hmm. and, and, or whatever it is. You know, I think I'll make life more comfortable for my wife uh, because she's going to have to uh, take care of this or take care of that. And you serve, you, you gen- but you have to have a reality check. You have yeah. to have a place where you do that at. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just in your mind, right. and it's no, it has no value. What's so interesting, um, I was reading the other day Alan Jacobs' uh, blog, um, and he was talking about all these sort of fights that have been breaking out in stadiums now that people are actually attending sports activities again. You just keep seeing these like violence, violence, too. yes. And and he's like he's like it, it may be that it's just you know, a handful of cases, and it makes it look like it's everywhere. He goes, but it also may be the fact that for a year, people were living online in unreality without any checks on what was going on internally and how to actually interact with other human beings, for which there are consequences. You can't just sort of, you know, say things, do things, punch somebody, and that's just a thing, and walk away. He's like, it's like watching a culture emerge from an unreality and collide with the reality of other persons with actual bodies in similar spaces as you and finding out that a lot of people don't know how to do that well because they've been living in this sort of hyper reality of stoked anger and tribal thinking and and so he's like he's just he's like that's an interesting little thing that's going on here violent violence is up and and the culture all of the culture is seeded with violence and hatred and uh, we're going to live with the consequences of that, unfortunately. And it may not be a, a, a very common occurrence, but all it has to do is occur once, and you happen to be at that event when somebody starts doing something evil. And, you know, that's unacceptable. So you're saying what a real home is and provides um, is a place for your personhood. And that is to say a place for your personhood to bump up against reality and be interacted with by other persons, whatever they believe, whatever they are, other persons that you live with and around, um, and that you you don't just exist as this sort of autonomous entity floating through space. Yes. Um, so a home is the place of persons. It's yes. the possibility of personhood. Because and, and without home, without a place, there is no personhood. Right. Okay. And, and without a community, there's no personhood. But without a place on a home, there's no personhood. Right. So then that's, that was, you said, the first sort of... The that's the first score. and second. Okay. First uh, and second. Yeah. Okay. Personhood and home. Yes. Okay. And the, and the third one is community, but it's, it's ecclesia. It's the gathered out community that believes in Jesus. Okay. Sure. So, so no man's an island. Uh, you know, there's only a couple of Ted Kaczynski's and they're locked <laughs> up, you know, the Unabomber guy. Uh, people communicate, they have community, they enter into communities with others. Yeah. Okay. So what, we, what we've seen in Thessalonica is this group of people listen to Paul come to town with the gospel 
and they decided to bring all their hardships and all of their associations together and associate with each other and grow in Christ. Okay, so, so that community, in a sense, it's local, but, it's, but, it's, but it can also be virtual. It can also be, you know, because you can connect virtually with a local community. Hmm. Uh, but, but the idea here uh, is, is that it's, it's, a, it's a community that's founded on love of Christ. It's founded on the gospel, okay? And so we Not might... founded on friendship, not founded on hobbies that are shared, not founded on principles that are held in some abstract... Even, even like secular humanism is bad. It's not founded on anything like that. Um, it's founded on Christ, and that's it. That's what it's founded on. And it's there to support each other in the ongoing... Uh, keeping that the bind, yeah. and the encouragement of that. And that's why you have to make explicit the wrongness of, of, the, uh, of, of the national, expanding, even global version of Christianity that has contamination in it, that has hatred, that has political aspirations in it. So when the ecclesia is called together, is gathered together, central to its project, its mission, its understanding, its communication, um, is making sure that Christ is the center of that and it's not a contaminated version of the church or the yes. Christian movement or whatever. And it, it can have people in it that have been contaminated. They just can't prevail. They just right. can't have their way. Right. So that's why you have to have a pastored church. It's kind of like you have to have a referee at a basketball game or it's going to turn into a slugfest. Right. You know? you, so as Jesus says in the parable, like there's going to be wheat and tares. It's not for us to pluck everything out um, and, and, and you know, say over here, over here, over here, over here. Um, there's going to be the possibility that anybody could be you know, filled with all sorts of strange things, but could be participating or being gathered by the Lord, by Christ, to uh, 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 ecclesia, to look called in. out of their of their yes. strange or or dangerous thoughts or behaviors, to look in on what's going on there. But they, as people, or as I hate to say, donors or whatever, they can't have some some say in the direction of that. Exactly. And the lines have to be drawn, and they have yeah. to be drawn firmer than they ever were before, because you and I both know Orange County, I mean, within, within churches, donors can, can, can call the pastor and go stop preaching that, yeah. which, which I've had people do to me. Yeah. And, and uh, you, you can't, you know, you, you can discuss things with people, but this old idea that I'm here, I'm part of this organic church, I bring the money. You know, right. I bring the money. That demands some respect. Right. Well, that doesn't demand more respect than the person who comes with no money right. that's in the valley the that's calling on Jesus. Yeah, yeah read the book of James. So that's a problem with, with, with contemporary evangelicalism in these high-value areas, that, that the money tends to be overweighted. And, uh, and, and pastors have to draw the line. But, but it can be done. I know a lot of wealthy people who, who leave who leave the pastoring of the church to the pastor gladly and with an open heart. And there's, there's one uh, blessed, blessed woman that I was concerned with when we first started Zoe. And I, uh, I asked about something that was, you know, it was pretty difficult for all of us to face. And, and her reply to me was, I'm going to go with whatever you see the best way to go is for us as a church, wow. no matter what. Yeah. And, and that's the kind of, responsibility that a pastor has to stand before God for, but when when the 
when the overall congregation or the or the sheep when they feel that way too they won't get contaminated by the person that says hey i give a lot of money here Uh, i gotta say here i don't like that Uh, someone else will say you know what that's not really the way it works here we we kind of uh, seek the Lord and, and, and we trust in him and, and we want the Lord to, to uh, have a, kind of like a, a, a basic structure here where, where the pastor calls the shots, the pastors are standing before God, they're responsible. Board of directors stands before Sacramento, they answer to the, you know, answer that way horizontally. But vertically, the pastors, you know, the pastored church basically, the mm-hmm. model of that. Mm-hmm. So the, the community, the us, the, the, the plurality, are saved. And that's the thing that, that's another difficulty is this isn't for individuals. Hmm. The, the scriptures talk about communities of faith being saved. Yeah. And there's going to be a range of, of depth of walking with the Lord. But what the community of faith stands for, what prevails in that community of faith, is, is the rescue of Jesus. And you see it in Revelation in the seven letters to the churches. Uh, And so that's another difficult one for us because we're so individualized and we're so thinking. Yeah, hyper-Protestants. Yeah. Yeah, and and so recovering not just a vision of the ecclesia as a called-out community of whatever, but as a called-out community centered on Christ, uh, pastored by people who are ordained, responsible, going to be accounting for what they do, preach, say, how they lead— um, but that it isn't an individual being a part of a church. Um, it's this community project that the Lord is saving. It's the body of Christ. It's, yes. the, it's the salvation that he's bringing to the us, which is, yeah, really hard for us to sort of process because we are much more likely, at least as evangelical, or you and I are probably not uh, identifying that way anymore, um, but as Protestants, um, it's like the church is, is is cool if you find a nice one that you like. And, and one that you agree with. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. One that you agree with, unless your pastor, you know, gets a little too political, you know, yeah. whatever, whatever it is. So, you know, you see people shopping for churches. I mean, yeah. ma- most people do this. They, they're like, well, I want to go online and see what church I should go to, which one I fit in the most, you know. And, and it's not how salvation is dished out. <laughs> <laughs> salvation is dished out to communities of faith. So go find a community of faith and get in it, yeah. and and uh, and and you know stay with it and, and until the Lord calls you somewhere else. But understand this: you you need to be accountable in a group. You can't just be personally uh, flexibly accountable. Oh, the Lord doesn't care about that. He mm. doesn't care about that. Oh, but He cares about this. So would you would we be able to say that it's like it's like the expanded version of the home, like a church home, in which you have to interact with the realities of the gospel being something that has to be able to check any one of our behaviors. That it's like a collection of persons that have to be able to be a, a group. Um, I would say that, except the results are, are different. Yeah. So with, with personhood, the result is, is life, zoe. It's abundant life. It's a flourishing of the person. With the place, 
the result, the, the maximum result is peace, shalom, mm. the, the, the home that has peace, that yeah. has God's blessing on yeah. it. The, and with the community, the blessing is salvation. salvation. These people are being yeah. saved. Yeah. Uh, they got to take a right turn here. The, God's going to wake up the pastor on Wednesday night and say, you better get working on your sermon, buddy, because you're preaching a message Sunday right. morning that's right. going to turn this whole group of people onto the right road, onto right. the narrow path. Yeah. And, and salvation is the promise for the 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 group and the community, mm. and 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 okay. so the results yeah, no, are different. But I like I like the I like the, uh, the the continuum of I'm thinking that. of that accountability. I'm thinking about a life that is accounted for that that has to sort of run up against other lives, but that are not being checked um, by, as you say, with the home peaceableness, um, but are being checked by the demands of Christ in this context of the church or the ecclesia. Um, if those are the three so far, then what would be the fourth? Well, the fourth one, uh, we live in the world. Yeah, We're not of the world, but we have to be in the world. In the real world, okay. <laughs> and this you can't per- see this, but he's saying that with with wide eyes. Yeah, with expanding <laughs> the real, universe hands. Oh, the real world, rather than the world of delusion okay. and confusion. So yes. there are worlds out there. There are alternative realities. <laughs> yes, there's there a pleasure seeking uh, group of people that live in the world. Yeah. They're called the world. Yeah. Uh, there's a very broken world out there that's uh, that's very uh, hedonistic and very uh, tribal or whatever. But there's also a civilized world. There's a there's a world that consults religious leaders and and uh, and, and tries to function in a way that's civilized. Um, and we have to live in a civilized world that's that's being rescued. Um, you know, I, I read somewhere where um, uh, where where we we cannot uh, live in the world and and abuse the world. And then say that that doesn't matter, and that that we are we are people who help and benefit the world. Mm. So um, you know, if the world says there's there's too much smog, and the nations around the earth have to come to some agreement or whatever, and and we have to start looking at ways to reverse climate change or whatever, the the civilized person doesn't say, well, that's not true. I can prove that's not true, and and, and make a fake science, or that pandemic is not real. Uh, and, and it's just going to go away because I've been told by some, uh, you know, leader somewhere that it's just going to go away. So, so we live in a real world where, where our, our actions are, they're, they're civilized actions. They respect other people as, as much as ourselves. They don't politicize everything so that we get an advantage because we're the, the, the right people or whatever. But we're there for people trying to be civilized. And we're there to say, you know, if you, if you social experiment with a family, this, this could cause you a lot of grief if you, if you cross lines that are not a, according to uh, what's going what, to please God and what's going to, what's going to be doable by you. Uh, you know, you, I once had an aunt who, who uh, and she's, she's gone to be with the Lord, I hope, now at this point. So I won't uh, say too much more about her. But she had a fascination for cats. And she had, uh, one time, there were like 27 cats. That's a lot of cats, John. And, and the children had screen doors to keep the cats in the hallway Jeez. out of the rooms. And uh, it, it just was not a civilized place <laughs> to be. I mean, the reality checks. So, so if we were to say, you know, uh, it's, it's okay for people to try and have as many cats as they want. Because cats need homes. You know, cats <laughs> need homes. You know, you get the point. Okay. Yeah. So... Uh, but but more importantly, 
we have to live in a world that's temporary right now. Our gospel tells us that this world's going to be melted down and redone. It's going to. But that's precisely why people don't care about it, right? That's precisely why the, the evangelicalism has has dislocated itself from what blesses our unbelieving neighbors, let's say. Yeah, right? but I, what I'm saying is we need a new viewpoint. And the right. viewpoint no, is we I'm, have to live here temporarily, and we want to live in a civilized world. And we're, and we're answerable to it, as you said before, right? Like, we're accountable. I mean, this is God's creation. Yeah, somebody finds barrels of toxic material off of San Onofre, and our, our, uh, our view of the world needs to be this is serious. We need to do something with it. And it's not just take it to the desert in Nevada and open it up. <laughs> you know, it's like, this is, this is real. This yeah. is our world we're living in. And, and, uh, and so, so, so to view the world as the temporary place that we've been, we were stewards over it completely in the Garden of Eden. And we still have stewardship of it uh, in the sense that it's a temporary home and we don't know when the Lord is coming back. And many generations of people might be saved still, although it looks like the fullness of the Gentiles may be uh, numbering up here. But, um, but, but we need to take care of it. It's temporary, yeah. and we have to be responsible. And I'm not just talking about climate change. I'm talking about social, uh, social issues of, of war and, and uh, you know, uh, the idea that, uh, that the genocide goes on around the world and uh, catastrophe goes on around the world. And... Um, you know, just for the sake of being civilized, being people who, who can love the whole world, yeah. uh, we have to have that as a part of our, our being again. For the good of the city, for the, the, the blessing of the, of the city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Live in exile for the good of, of the city in which you are in exile, right? I mean, that's the call to the prophets. It's called Jeremiah. And, and heartfelt, too. And that's yeah. the whole point of our, right. our including it in these four things. Yeah. Is it has to be heartfelt. I knew a couple one time that woke up one morning, came to church, and there was a, there was a sermon on street kids in Venezuela, and living in gutter or living in the sewage system, and they were so moved by that they started a lifetime ministry, uh, you know, to to kids there, yeah. and uh, you know, and that's that's the kind of, of love and passion, you know, like like the Brooks quote, you know, we spend our life, yeah. we need to fall in love with things, right. and make promises to things and right. keep those promises. Right. And, and that's life within us, a, a healthy, a balanced life, and a reality check. Right. You know? Right. And so those, those four things, right, this is, you're talking about how to live in a moment in which the, the overstretched nature of contemporary Christianity, which ended up being so thin, full of holes, contaminated, corrupted, misled, confused, um, how then do we live in this time in in this valley um how how do we i like the title there how then should we live (laughs) i feel like i've heard that before um but but yeah you're saying that this is something that any anybody who's seeking to live an honest life uh for the lord um that we that we need as 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 christians as, as as the church we need to be up to these four things What's at stake here for the church, for the for the organ, organic church, the gathering is, is we want them to have life, we want them to have peace at home, we want them to have salvation as a community of faith, and we want the world to temporarily exist until the second coming, yeah. <laughs> in a in a civilized, habitable way for yeah. for most people who who will end up hearing the gospel maybe. 
Well, and as, as you said so many times before, you know, people, the gospel doesn't go forward, you know, and, and isn't heard when people are running for their lives, when they're starving to death, when they're, when, when society or migrating breaks down. because of wars or, or climate migrating change. because yeah. of wars and rumors of war. Yeah. When society breaks down, there isn't some easy sort of spread of the gospel and, oh, the church will just keep on as the, as the, as the temporary world catches on fire, we'll just keep preaching that gospel. It's like, there's no, there's no there's no space for the gospel un- unless there is habitable space and thus there's civil space unless there is some peacefulness in societies that function governments that function um otherwise people are just they're just running <laughs> they're they're just terrified they're just they're just trying to survive and and you know and the 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 omission that is given to the early apostles of course paul included there is a Pax Romana. There is a a civic society which is not lovely. I mean, but it but it is stable in, in its ways, and and it feels like there's moments in which we're ready to just throw that out if, because we don't like it. We don't like who might be in charge of this, that, and the other thing. That clearly was not the call of the apostles. It's like let government. Let, let this function. Let this function. Yes. Let this be orderly in its ways, even if it, it, it seems to be radically unfair in certain ways. Like the orderliness of a civic space is 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 preeminent because they're trying to preach the gospel. They're trying to travel safely from place to place to actually have a hearing for Christ, and and they're not not concerned with the world, and they're not unaware of it, and they haven't withdrawn from it. And they're also not trying to put all of their energy into toppling it and changing uh, who is in control of what. Um, that's not their primary concern. It's not the agenda of the apostles. So in that way, um, we would have to scale back our need to control uh, civic space and, and, and try to see how we could seek the good of civic space and and life together, not find our enemies in the civic space not either. Look for and find enemies in the civic space, right? Life is all filled with these issues yeah. that are they're masked because we're materialistic hmm. and we've given up on on the the hope and meaning of of life, and we've been so blessed. Hmm. We we've been so blessed with the riches that are in our land, with with uh, you know some of the securities we have as a country. Uh, we've been so blessed, and and we're like the people of Romans, where if we if we don't find a place of gratitude, it's gonna be taken away. We're gonna give it away yeah. willingly because yeah. we're not grateful for yeah. it. So these four things, this is about. I believe this is about salvation now. That I don't know that these things won't happen in huge, large churches but they've got to happen in some communities or there's not going to be any salvation. There's not going to be a, a saving from the things that are all around us because the contaminations are deep, they're popular, they're caustic, they eat at the soul, and, uh, and, they, and they trigger in us the very worst of us. They, they bring out in us that, that depth of the human heart that Jesus said out of the heart precedes these issues of life, and they are the worst things that come out. Mm. So we would encourage uh, pastors, um, people who are in communities of faith, people who maybe are Christians looking for communities of faith, we would encourage them that even in a moment like this, maybe even especially in a moment like this, um, it's not back to business as usual. It's not back to things the way they were always done, that we need to have a, a, 
a sharper focus on developing, cultivating personhood, cultivating a, a life that, that has a body to it, that, that has skills, that has things the Lord has, has given us to, to do, um, to put our, our, our hand to, um, to, to cultivate homes that, that are legitimate, peaceful, um, that, that, that our reality checks on our thoughts <laughs> and our, and our, our big ideas. Um, and then that we have to be a part of a community of faith that's called out for the purpose of the gospel and Christ at its center. Um, and we need to be engaged or connected to the real world in ways that bless and do not harm. And I think the days of political activism are over. I, I think that no one can do that as a hobby anymore. I mean, we barely have the right to vote left. I mean, you, you know, you get out there in that politically active sphere and you're going to be targeted, labeled, uh, and you're going to be put in line with the agenda of a million or 50 million other people with a similar agenda. And I don't think we're going to find the power of the gospel in that place. I, I think people need to steer away from that completely and totally and recognize that as man's way to, to, to survive and to keep going and to turn to the gospel, to live holy for the gospel. John, thank you. Thank you for just for your care. Thank you for, um, for bringing your honesty and, and for the encouragement that, you know, it is a time to be distinct. It is a time to make decisions. It is a time for certain lines uh, to, be, to be drawn in our own hearts. Um, and to me, that's really energizing. That's, that's the kind of thing that I want to be up to. I want more clarity. I don't want things to continue to blur and be indistinct. Um, you know, I, I can think about person and I can think about my home. I, I can think about our, our church and the purposes for which you and I are going to answer, um, before the Lord in particular. Um, and I can think about my neighbors and the world and the city I live in and, and, and what hurts it and what blesses it and what, what the Lord wants for it as, as our job as stewards of that. So I, I feel like this is extremely helpful and I, and I'm thankful to you for kind of putting in the, 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 energy and the effort to continue to try to look through some of this stuff in order to see a little more clearly um, where we go from here. And I think our prayer will just be that, that other Christians will be able to, to get free of some of this contamination. Yes. Yeah. And, and Dave, thank you for uh, letting me uh, be a part of your podcast. And the prayer that I think, I think we can say amen to is that we'll be more like a Thessalonian community of faith than a Laodicean from Revelation 3.14, that, that will be more, or less of the voice of the people and more the voice of the gospel, both to those we love and, and fellowship with and, uh, and to those outside. Amen and amen. That's our time, my friends. If you would like to support the podcast, please do subscribe and rate us on iTunes. And if you would like even more content and to become a patron of the podcast, head on over to FromBabylonWithLove.com, click on Newsletter, and sign up there. Until then, many thanks to producer Zach Leach for all the twists and turns, and to Lonesome and Muddy, the only house band that'll survive the apocalypse. This has been From Babylon with Love.